You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of John. Here's Nate. The Gospel of John is one of the most beautiful books in the Bible. I think one of the things that makes the book of John so incredibly beautiful is its incredible diversity. And by diversity, what I mean is that this book has been used in a myriad of ways in people's lives. In other words, this book has been used by college students and intellectuals in order to discover the truth about Jesus Christ. This book has been used to comfort the sick and lift up a discouraged soul. Uh, This book has some of the most famous verses that a child would understand or that a child would memorize. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. John 3 verse 16. Now the book of John is a wonderfully diverse and beautiful book. And inside of it, John is in so many points almost poetic as he records the life and the ministry of Jesus. He gives us pictures of Jesus as the bread of life, as the light of the world, as the good shepherd, and as the vine with us as the branches. It is a a marvelous book and a wonderful journey that we get an opportunity to embark on in looking at this beautiful gospel. Now it is a gospel that is remarkably different from the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, There are many differences, but some of them that are, I think, worth noting is that in the gospel of John, there are no parables mentioned as in the other gospels. The transfiguration, a very important moment in the life of Christ, is not mentioned. The Last Supper and the institution of communion, that part of the Last Supper, is not mentioned in the book of John. You don't see in the Gospel of John Jesus casting out demons, and you don't see the moments of temptation. You do receive some of Jesus' longer teachings, which, you know, happens from time to time in the other Gospels. But these are different longer teachings than Matthew, Mark, and Luke record for us. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke were very concerned with the theme of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And John seemingly is unconcerned with that particular theme and instead includes new material. Water turned to wine, Jesus's ministry in the region of Samaria, the raising of Lazarus. And so it's a unique book for many reasons. And so I I deeply love the gospel of John. And before we embark on the first verse, I think a thing to encourage you with is from John 20, verse 30 and 31. John loves to record for us the reason that he writes his book and his epistles. And he says in John 20, verse 30 and 31, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
And so a study of the Gospel of John is wonderful because it helps us see who Jesus is. And upon seeing who Jesus is, we can then believe in who he is. And upon believing and receiving who he is, we can then have life in his name. And I think John understood this to be more than just a uh, get-out-of-hell-free card or a ticket to heaven. I think that John, when he thought of life in the name of Jesus, he thought of an abundant, glorious kind of life. And so let us now turn to the book of John and discover what John has to say to us about the life of Jesus. Now really, the first 18 verses set you up for the rest of the Gospel of John. This is the prologue to the book where John is going to introduce major themes that he will then unfold and unravel throughout the rest of this Gospel. In other words, the things that we'll briefly touch on in these first 18 verses, John is going to expand upon and expound upon later on in the book. The first theme, and really this first section, all hinges on this particular idea, and really the Gospel of John hinges upon this idea. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And so the Gospel of John starts off with a bang, with the phrase, in the beginning. This may be reminiscent of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And so what John is referring to is this moment. There was a moment in eternity past, and in that beginning, when creation occurred, at that point in time, there was a situation, a personality that was already existent at the beginning of the existence of all that was created. And that thing or that person, that reality that was already present, he says in verse 1, is the word. In the beginning was the word. Now we know that this word is more than just the simple word of God in the sense of the written word of God. It says in verse 2 that he, this word, was in the beginning with God. And in verse 14, of course, we discover that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen or we have beheld his glory. So we know that the word is the person of Jesus Christ. So now this phrase, the word, this is the Greek word logos or logos. And in John's day, it did have a particular meaning. I don't know that there's a lot of agreement on what the particular meaning was. But in John's day, the Greeks had a certain use for this word. The Jews had a certain use for this word. It was a philosophical word to the Greeks. It would indicate perhaps inner thought or reason or science or a god of reason and logic. To the Jew, it could indicate the power of the word of God, the Old Testament revelation of God's word, in the sense that sometimes God's word, even in the Old Testament, is personified, takes on personality. 
It says in Proverbs 8, verse 12, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. If you read the rest of Proverbs chapter 8, you see the personification of wisdom. And so some Jews would have thought of the logos of God's word as the personification of the word of God. But really, to understand what John wanted to use this word for, you just need to keep reading the gospel of John. He says in verse 18, when he returns back to the theme of the word, who is this word and what does he do? It says, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He, that being Jesus, has made him known. So if you want to know in the heart and the mind of John what the goal or the reason for the word in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. In other words, John, in his mind and in his heart, he thinks of Jesus as the perfect expression of God himself. By looking at Jesus, a person is able to know God. And for all that God has revealed to us of himself through general revelation, the creation and the like, through the revelation of the Holy Word, the Scripture. Those are wonderful revelations of God to man, but they are nothing in comparison to the revelation of the Word who was God, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So here in the, this first verse, we discover a few things about Jesus. First of all, he is present in the beginning, verse 1. And so the Word, Jesus, is pre-existent. It means that he is eternal. Number two, we see that the word was with God. In other words, Jesus is a person who is distinct from the Father. At the same time, however, verse 1, we also see that the word was God. In other words, Jesus, although distinct from the Father, is also God himself. And so we have here in verse 1 and 2, shades of the Trinity. Just a beautiful doctrine and a beautiful introduction from John. And really, the whole Gospel of John is about verse 1. That there is this word and verse 18, there is this Jesus who came to make God known. And so when you're studying the book of John, really what you're into is a study of Christ. You're, you're looking at Christology, and in looking at Christology, you have an opportunity to see who God is. And what better way to discover the nature of God than through the gospel? And how can you discover the gospel apart from Jesus? And so a wonderful opportunity that we have to discover the heart and the reality of who God is through the gospel of John. Now he moves on in verse 3 and he talks about the creative power of this word. He says, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. And so we, we learn secondly here that Jesus created all things. Paul records this for us in Colossians 1, verse 16 and 17, when he says, For by him, being Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 says, In these last days God has spoken to us by his Son, 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And so the question then would be, how did the world get here? How did what we see come to be? And the answer is Jesus. Jesus was actually involved in, before the incarnation, he was involved in the creation of mankind. And of course, we live in a world that is attempting to declare to us that the human species or race is an accident and that we are the fullest evolved animal around. And I think if a human being just inspects their heart for a moment, they would discover that those ideas are absolutely repulsive. The truth is that we are not just simply the highest order of the animal kingdom, but that God has put a spirit inside of us, a soul inside of us, a capability of communion with the God of the universe. And the wonderful design and intricacy in, in us, in our bodies, and in the world that we live in indicates that we are not accidental, but that there is a purpose for all of this, and Jesus was involved in that purpose. And in verse 4, John goes on and declares not only that Jesus is the creator and the eternal God, but that he is the life and light. Notice how he says it in verse 4. These two verses are actually, I, I read one author who said they are intentionally ambiguous. In other words, they're just mysterious enough to wet your taste buds for what is to come. And this is how he says it. He says in verse 4, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so John then now begins to talk about Jesus as the life, and the life leading to the light of men, and the light shining in the darkness, and that darkness not overcoming it. And so, as I said in that phrase, it's semi-mysterious, exactly what John is speaking of. But all I know is that as he speaks of these things, and of course we understand that when he talks about Jesus as the life, it, it comes through belief in him. And when he talks about Jesus as the light of all men, it's something that occurs when you believe in him. There's an illumination that takes place in the human heart. But here, these words, life and light, these were words that in that culture were absolute powder kegs of thought and idea. And so for John to say them, like I said, it is truly wetting the appetite of that which is to come. You know, for me, I, you know, got three wonderful daughters and, you know, in their younger years, there were times and still are times where there perhaps is a movie that we want to take them to in the movie theater. And they don't always know what's playing in the theater or what isn't, but inevitably when it's time to take them. One of the things that I love to do is I love to, at home, I love to show them a preview, you know, a trailer that gives them an indication of what is to come. And without telling them that we're going to the movie, I ask them, would you like to watch a preview of a movie that is in the theater right now? And inevitably they'll watch the preview They'll begin to get excited and then they'll say, please, 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 can we go watch the movie? And knowing that I already intended to take them, I look at them and I say, yes, we can. That preview established an anticipation inside of them, an excitement inside of them 
that cause them to desire to see the rest of the story. And that's really what John, I think, is doing in verse 4 and 5. He's saying, listen, there is this life and there is this light. Do you want to know him? Now, you see in verse 4 and 5 a little microcosm of the gospel, right? Because he says, in him, Jesus, was life. You know, you discover Jesus, you get Jesus, you get the blood, you get the cross, and you get life. And then he says the light shines in the darkness. This is, is exactly what Jesus has done and is continuing to do through the church as the light of the world. And the darkness, he says, has not overcome it. And the darkness never will fully overcome Jesus Christ. Now in verse 6, you have a bit of parentheses, which is still a part of the preview. When he says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So here we're introduced to John the Baptist. And we're not really at this point told anything about his style, his mannerisms, his birth, which was miraculous, his upbringing, his lifestyle, which was wild. We're not really told much about his ministry at this point. But what we are told is his function. And his function, it's a word that's repeated three times in those three verses, was to bear witness, to witness of Jesus, to testify of Christ. And, and so the preparatory ministry of John the Baptist, like I said, this is part of the preview. You're, you're, we're going to discover John the Baptist in just a few moments later on in this first chapter. Now the true light, verse 9, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So now John expounds for a little bit about this light. And the first thing that he talks about is the effect of this light and the promise of the coming of this light. He says, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world, verse 9. Now that phrase that this light, who is Jesus, that he gives light and enlightens everyone, it's an interesting phrase. You know, some people take this to mean some version of general revelation. We saw that Jesus, through him, all things were made, and through him, without him, not anything was made that was made. He was involved in creation. And so some people say, well, this light which enlightens everyone, that's general creation. It's just the world that we can observe and to look and look at. Paul affirmed this idea in Romans 1, verse 19 and 20. When he said, for what can be known about God is plain to the world because God has shown it to them. Where did he show it to them? He says, verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And so there is this revelation that is given to all men through creation. And perhaps that's what John is referring to. But I think any believer understands that there are moments where the Lord himself enlightens your heart. 
uh, sort of an inner illumination, not just a general revelation, but an inner illumination. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. He said, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, or let there be light, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul said, When God said, Let there be light, on that first day of creation, we can relate to that because that's what it felt like when our hearts were opened up to the gospel. And maybe that's what's happening in verse 9 when John says, the true light which enlightens everyone. But to me, there's something greater and grander going on than either of those things. Perhaps it is those things. Perhaps that is what John is referring to. But it seems as if John is referring to, in some sense, the way that the light of Jesus Christ messes with everyone. And Jesus will interact with every human being on earth in one way or another. At some point, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so I think this is some kind of worldwide ministry from Christ, not a universal salvation, but a ministry of Christ somehow to all men. Now you learn in verse 10 and 11 here in John's prologue that when Jesus came, first of all, verse 10, the world did not know him. And then in verse 11, you discover that his own people did not receive him. In general, the world rejected Christ. And in general, Israel rejected Christ. Not everyone in the world. And not everyone in Israel. I mean, his disciples were Israelites. There were many in Israel who received the Lord. 3,000 Jews on the day of Pentecost gave their lives and hearts to Christ. So, while there may be a remnant in general, there was rejection. But in verse 12, he says it this way. He says, but to all who did receive him, there are those who received the Lord. But to all who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so John points out that when a person does not reject the Lord, but receives the Lord. And and don't you love that word? He He says, all who did receive him, who believed in his name. It is belief that is reception and reception that is belief. But at this reception, what happens? Well, he says that he gives a right to those people to become children of God. You see, mankind is not naturally a child of God in a general sense, in that God initiated us and established us in his image in that general sense, someone might be able to say, we are children of God. But to declare yourself as his child in fellowship with him, in community with him, in covenant with him, without Christ, minus Christ, is without merit. John tells us that the way that a person is born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, but the will of man, but born of God and becomes a child of God is through belief in his name and reception of Jesus. And so it's imperative 
that a person then who begins reading the Gospel of John would ask the question, what is there for me to believe about Jesus? What is there for me to receive about Jesus? Whatever it is, I long to believe it and receive it, that I might be called a child of God. Now in verse 14, one of the most glorious verses in all of the Bible, it says that, and the word, you remember the word theme that John was giving earlier in verse 1 and 2? He picks it back up again, leaves the light analogy and moves to the word when he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Word became flesh, number one. This is the incarnation. Paul spoke of it when he said in Philippians 2, verse 6, that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so in verse 1 of this chapter, we discover that in the beginning was the Word, pre-existent. But in verse 14, that Word that was pre-existent became something. And what he became was flesh, man, human. It's not that he gave up his deity. He, in a sense, emptied himself and set aside the privileges of deity. But he became God in the flesh and he became human, fully God, fully man. The incarnation, a glorious doctrine. But beyond that, it says that he dwelt among us. That's a word that a Jew would understand. It's the idea of tabernacling or camping, placing or pitching a tent. And the Lord dwelt, he tabernacled, he pitched a tent amongst mankind. And John says, we have seen his glory. John was an eyewitness to these things. Now in verse 15, there's a parenthesis, which tells us that this glory wasn't just an obvious shining, although it was expressed at moments, like the Mount of Transfiguration, but, but he needed witnesses. This Jesus came in glory, but he still needed witnesses when it says, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So John, again, would affirm the deity of Christ. He ranks before me because he was already before me. Even though John was born first, uh, he realized that Jesus was preexistent before him. And verse 16, to close out our section, John says, and from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace for the law was given through Moses and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In other words, the law, Moses gave it to us, which was grace, but we have received grace upon or grace, which has replaced grace. There's a greater grace than the law. And that grace is the gospel of Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, John says. The only God who is at the Father's side. How's that for a statement of the deity of Christ? The only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And so as God, Jesus shines brightly in this world as the perfect expression of God. And our study in the gospel of John will enable us 
to see Jesus, which according to John will enable us to see God. God bless you and, and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.